0: curiosity what are you so curious about everything mr curiosity all righty folks joe snedeker here mr curiosity with the latest and greatest podcast and the beauty of the mr curiosity podcast is you know sometimes they do people from WNEP everyone likes to know the the details and gossip and life of the WNEP people but then we go outside And we get recommendations from others. I've interviewed rock stars and uh, owners of businesses. And now we got a guy, and I'll say a guy. See how I'm setting you up there, Rob? Called (laughs) Rob O'Donnell, who was set up by my radio colleague, Nancy Kamen from uh, WILK. Right, Rob? Yeah, yeah. And I'm just going to go through a couple things to grab people's interest. If you're saying, well, I don't want to listen to this. Yes, you do, because Rob was born and raised in Queens, played drums for a few 80s icon bands before coming a police officer. I can't wait to hear about that. <laughs> this one I'm a little confused by. Only first responder in America to be involved with four terror attacks on our homeland. So we'll find out about that. Married 28 years. All right. I have that badge, too, brother. And uh, your wife, personal trainer with Mindy Ramsey. What else could we say? Died once. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah. Law enforcement been on many uh, talk shows and cable networks, national syndicated radio. How you doing, Rob? Good. Glad to be here, Joe. Thanks for All having right. me. All right. So let's start out with the accent. I already feel you sick of people saying <laughs> the New York accent. Do You hate that? Yeah, you know, but you know, it's it's part of my, who
1: I am. You know, I've been here 19 years. Uh, I lived in Northeast Pennsylvania, so I, I'm almost here. <laughs> as long as I was there. So, you know, I lived in New York City 27 years. So I, I got a little more to go. But, you know, I, I think the 19 year mark, you know, I think I I could consider myself a, a Pennsylvanian.
0: Oh gosh, yes. It's funny how though we here around here, I guess we all when when you hear the New York accent, you immediately start judging whether you whether it's whether, you know, whether it's it's conscious or not, you just are. Oh, there's a New Yorker. Do you get a lot of that, like New Yorker? What are you doing here, New Yorker? Yeah, I mean the
1: accent's picked up right away. You, you got it right away. You know anybody you speak to has it has it right away. It's bit, once you're out of this area, it's kind of is that New York, Boston, like when you're down south or something oh, yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. they get it right away. But you know what's funny? When I looked for my house here, you know, almost 20 years ago. I made a circle of where the New Yorkers go to vacation, the Poconos, where they shop, where they travel. Yeah, and I moved. I bought a house outside of that ring because I didn't want to deal with the New Yorkers anymore.
0: <laughs> Let me guess. That circle was like uh, Long Pond. It was Poconos. It was, it was the Paw Pack. Yeah. It was down towards Monroe, Carvin County, right?
1: Sure, but even lower, uh, lower
0: uh, Lackawanna County. You know, you got the Goolsborough area. You got yes, the, you're the right. Moscow. Yeah. You guys have area. you have infiltrated that far west? So you said and consciously, I, I want to go beyond that circle.
1: Yeah, so I'm, That's I'm funny. Right on, <laughs>
0: uh,
1: I'm I'm within rocks throwing distance of the Susquehanna border. I live in northern Lackawanna County, uh, but uh, yeah, just outside of that 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 bubble where I figured you know I, I wanted the change as well.
0: I thought you would build a T one eleven home at Big Bass Lake, like all the other New Yorkers. No, <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> Far from it. All right. So um, what's it like uh, in Queens? You know, a a, a guy like me who, you know, left college for a few years to get out of the area, but married a girl from this area, born and raised in this area, have a job in this area, been a teacher in this area, a college professor in this area. Um, To me, anything New York, Queens, Bronx, Manhattan, Long Island, it just seems intimidating, big, big, People, crime, uh, uh, energy, opportunity, but a lot of negatives, too. Like, What's your take on uh, the whole Queens upbringing?
1: You know, I wouldn't when I look back at it, I wouldn't change it for anything in the world because I've traveled throughout the world. You know, I, I got bored with the typical spring breaks when I was in college and, and even beyond when I was a rookie police officer, you know, going to Fort Lauderdale, going to the Bahamas, going to Cancun, Mexico. You did all that. Yeah, so I started traveling <laughs> to South South America. So, so my spring breaks consisted of me going to, you know, Bogota, Colombia, you know, Caracas, Venezuela, and stuff like that. And just growing up, have that situational awareness of being born and raised in New York City, where, where it just... Back in the 70s and 80s was not a safe place. You have that situational awareness where I could travel anywhere in the world and, and feel comfortable and not feel like there's a threat around the corner because I'm just used to always looking around the, the corner. And my kids and wife and people that I would go traveling with now, you know, just walking down the street. You know, my wife and I went to New Orleans uh, a couple months ago. And as we were walking, I was pointing out people saying, I'll oh, see what these people are doing. They look in the pickpocket. Someone see what this person is doing. Is that right? So you this, have this keen
0: this, sense of awareness, this hyper-vigilance. Yeah, you, you do. Yeah, you That's do. That's interesting. And, uh, now,
1: it, I I am very thankful for that upbringing. And I see my kids, they're all grown now. My youngest has tw- just turned 20 my oldest is 27. And, uh, you know, when they go to places like New York now, or they travel to New Orleans or somewhere themselves, you know, I know growing up in rural Pennsylvania, they really don't have that because, you know, I moved here for the rest of my life to raise my family and grow old. This is this. I don't want to look over my shoulder anymore. I don't want to look around the corner ahead of me to see what's going on. Yeah,
0: it is. I'm already judging you, though. When you said that when you were in college, you went to South America, I believe you said I did my parents and my family didn't even have the money for me to get out of Lackawanna County. I'm guessing I'm, I'm supposing that you come from some cash. Maybe the uh, dad had a good job, mom, something like that. How do you, how do you vacation all around the world when you're in college?
1: Quite, quite the opposite, Joe. I have, I have two brothers. Uh, my mother was a stay at home mom. My dad worked two and three jobs, you know, barely making ends meet, but they, oh, okay. they thought growing up in New York city with three sons uh, you know, it was better for a mom to be home and have a watchful eye on him. She was without a doubt, the disciplinarian of, of our family. Uh, so, you know, it was, it was struggling times back then, you know, if you got hurt or need to go to the hospital, it was all, how bad is it really? Cause the hospital bills are hospital bills. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it really was not. And, and my parents ended up leaving, uh, to Boston cause my father did get a better job, you know, as, as time went on when I was, I think I just turned 21. And they moved, and I took over the, the the townhouse that we were living in, the apartment we were living in, right? Um, and and continued living there, you know, as, as an adult where I grew up. Uh, but my my motto was always work hard, play hard. So I I worked when I was going to college. I was going to college full time. I worked two and three jobs, and uh, you know, saved my money because when I went on vacation, I didn't want money to be an obstacle for those week or two that I was on vacation. So that, that was my motto back then.
0: I take my judgment call back then. <laughs> <laughs> but I would seriously vacation in Lackawanna County when I was in college. And some of my friends would go to like Cancun and the bikini girls in Miami and Fort Lauderdale. And I was stuck here. So uh, I'm glad you did that. So in high school, though, I'm trying to picture a high school in Queens. And of course, you can't simplify something that broad. But what was it like?
1: Um, it's actually real easy to picture. If you ever see the movie A Bronx Tale, the high I school. Did, the high school they use in that movie, where where the young kid uh, and, and meets his girlfriend, that's my high school, Brian William Cullen Bryant High School in Woodside Queens. So wow. that was filmed uh, filmed in my high school. Uh, but you know, you look at the high schools here. You know, I think our our total population like, of a high school here is like four hundred for the entire four grades. Yeah,
0: most graduating class is a hundred and fifty, something like that.
1: Yeah, I think my high school it was like twenty two hundred kids for Unbelievable. the, for the four grades. Yeah. All
0: ethnic diversity, all different types, right? And you're just a yep. you know, in a way, you're just a name, you're a number, right? You're not a you're not, you don't even know some of your classmates, right?
1: You knew your friends and that's pretty much it. You kind of knew everybody by sight, you know, knew the groups by sight, but you really you only knew your core group of friends and maybe a few others outside of that because it was so big.
0: So it wasn't like welcome back cotter? No, not at all. <laughs> See, that's that's in my mind forever. Like anyone from New York Welcome back, Cotter. <laughs> yeah. A lot of old dingy buildings, a lot of uh, poverty. That's, I mean, that's my mental image. It's sad, but it's true. <laughs> you know, back in the 70s and 80s, that, that was the case.
1: It know, was in, the in, case. In the- I
0: tell people yeah. that, you know, because now what they did to uh, downtown New York, it's where the place... People want to go now, right? When you picture... Well, not now. It was for the the later part of the 90s and early 2000s. Pre-COVID, yeah. It's starting
1: to get back there now. It's starting to, you know, they're starting to let it slide to where, you know, they're seeing touches of that late 80s, early 90s again.
0: You're right. But remember all those movies from the 60s and 70s? It was just all crime and dark alleys and poverty and,
1: and... it wasn't just that. When, when I first became a police officer in 1991, my first assignment was Times Square, um, where you had all the, the pornographic theater, the X-rated theaters. You know, you couldn't walk five steps without someone raped, shot or stabbed or, or robbed. Uh, it was bad. But, you know, you learn the job very quickly by
0: walking a street like so that. So when at night. was that, Rob? What year was that? What year did you become a police officer? So you get a high school and what happens? Uh, I started working. Uh, my, my my goal
1: in in college was music therapy. You know, I was a musician all through you know my youth, uh, and I, I decided to go into a field that way. I worked for the Office of Mental Health as a crisis preventionist with uh you know uh, emotional support students. Uh, being a crisis preventionist, when they got too violent for the public schools, they put them in these campuses that were also residential homes. Okay. Uh, so they couldn't harm themselves or others. So I was a crisis preventionist, where you learn to talk to them down from having, you know, an explosion in class and, you know, being certified by the state to restrain them. Um, so what was so, the major, so in,
0: major in college? It was like social work? It was music therapy. Music therapy. Get yeah. out of here. And you yeah. seem like this big, tough, burly guy. You would never go into music therapy. <laughs> well, I was a musician <laughs> and I, I was a lot thinner in my youth. Like you kind of <laughs> fill into the age you are, I guess. I'm not implying that you're overweight. You just look like a tough guy. You just look like a uh, like uh, like a like a like a bouncer at a bar. <laughs> uh,
1: I, that was one of the three jobs I had in college. So.
0: <laughs> so you get into music therapy. You're you're a musician. You're playing drums. You're uh, you're a twenty-something. You get when, when you get into the police force and tell me about these '80s bands. I got to hear that. Yeah, like in 1991, I was called for the
1: police department, you know, it was something I always wanted to do. I, you know, I guess the job I was doing then working, you know, in the in capacity with the Office of Mental Health, uh, dealing with these children, these children who have both uh, severe psychological issues and behavioral issues, you know, it's just a wider scale to help on, on that, 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 uh, that platform. Uh, but when I got called for the police department in, in 1991, you know, being being Irish in New York, you know, there was a couple of things you did, you know, fireman, police officer, you know, criminal or or continue with the <laughs> profession you're at. Uh, so I just saw it as a larger calling and and ended up leaving college in my uh, just after my second year and going uh, to the police academy. But before that, I but was- But Rob, uh, don't
0: you need, I thought you need like a criminology degree or something. Maybe back then you can just slip into police work. How does that happen?
1: Yeah, back then it was a high school diploma. Uh You actually get, I think it's a semester's worth of college credits for going to the police academy because you're taking sociology, psychology, and, uh, of course, physical education and a bunch of other things. So I I think you end up coming out of the the police academy with, like, 18 or 19 credits as well.
0: So you're a police officer stationed where in the city in the early 90s? I can't even picture this. Is it like the movies?
1: Yeah, Midtown Manhattan was it. Get out of here. And rookie police officers normally work the eight at night to four in the morning shift. So I was out the, out there for the the depth of it. You, know, you the were of the not in midtown Manhattan.
0: I mean, yeah. when I picture it, for for whatever reason, it's appealing. If there's a movie about police officers and crime in New York City, I have to watch it. I mean, is it what we think? what we've been fed by the, uh, you know, by pop culture.
1: Some of it is, uh, you know, blue bloods uh, TV show that's out there is very close to, to you know, yeah, everything doesn't get really. solved. Everything doesn't get solved in forty-five minutes with commercials and you know the way they exaggerate things. But you know, NYPD Blue was close. Law and Order kind of pushes the envelope a little bit, you know, with dramatics. But you know, right. there are there are shows out there that get close.
0: I, and I my feeling is when you're a police officer in New York City, you're so saturated with negativity and crime. It seems like half the time you're turning your heads and looking for a bigger crime. Is there any truth to that? I mean, you're you're overlooking bums on the streets, unfortunately, and prostitutes and drug dealers, and you it's just so commonplace, it becomes second nature. Correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, back then the larger crimes were there right in front of you. You know, the city was kind of scourged by the crack epidemic in the late '80s, early '90s. And crime was rampant, and you know we were enforcing the broken windows theory, where the smaller crimes, people who commit the bigger crimes also commit the smaller crimes. So you know if you target the smaller crimes, you prevent the bigger crimes, and you end up getting people for warrants for the bigger crimes. So you know even if you're getting someone just jumping the turnstile, you know if you're going to rob someone or you just committed a bank robbery upstairs, you're not going to pay your dollar fifty, whatever it was back then, to get on the subway you're going to jump the turnstile. So you arrest somebody for a simple offense, like jumping the turnstile and you find out they have a gun because they planned on robbing people or they just robbed the bank upstairs. You know, we, we had that more than one occasion, especially in midtown Manhattan, where someone would rob the bank. Where's the first place they go. They run into the subway system. And you're so chasing,
0: a, you're doing that. You're chasing bank robbers and arresting prostitutes and drug that you're doing all that. Yeah, it depends on uh, what your focus was as a general p- patrol officer
1: out on the street in uniform, walking in beat, you know, whatever came your way, you know, if you were the arresting officer, you were the arresting officer. I, my first arrest was a robbery of a commercial truck where uh, they uh, were robbing the tr- guy in the back of the truck. And I came walking around the corner and the guy looked at me, the, the victim saw me in uniform and said, help, they're robbing me. And the guys turned around and were like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: Get out of here.
1: You know, put them in handcuffs. And I think I was only out for a couple of weeks and, uh, you know, called my supervisor and said, I, I, I think I have a robbery. You know, they <laughs> came back and they were like, hey, great job, kid.
0: But when you think about the movies, like 48 hours, and are you, are you shooting at people? Are you getting shot at? Or is that a very rare occurrence? You know, I mean, when you think about some of these pop culture movies that are entrenched in our brain
1: yeah it's it's rare. I mean you take you I've had my gun out you know a lot a lot of times. Uh, I've, i' I've really only come close to shooting someone once uh, where it was actually you know squeezing squeezing the trigger and then the situation changed where I didn't have to, thankfully. Uh, you know, I've been in a couple situations where we've been shot at. Uh, so, you know, it happens, but it's not like an everyday occurrence. Like you, you see in these, these shows that try and keep the audience captive.
0: Yeah. And when you were doing that, were you thinking, I can't do this the rest of my life or were you hunkered in? Like, this is it. This is it. This is 20, 25 years. It was a great job. Uh, you know,
1: I, I miss the work I did. I miss, I don't miss the politics of it. I don't miss where it's gone lately as far as, you know, just targeting law enforcement as a bad entity. Uh, so, uh, I'm glad I'm out. Uh, I miss, you know, I miss that the the day-to-day work that we did because we really did and they still do excellent work. Uh, but uh, we, yeah, we, you
0: look back and you kind of miss it. I don't want to get political in any way, but the whole defund the police thing fried my ham so much. Like I, I, in any profession, you're going to find a couple bad eggs as they say, but come on, defund the police. Is just ridiculous, and to have you guys get a bad reputation is, you know, when you're when you're fighting the good fight and keeping the laws intact. How dare that evolve out of nothingness?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, when you look at policing as a totality, I mean, there's eight hundred thousand law enforcement officers in America. They have three, 30 million contacts with the public. Uh, when you look at the the incidents that do happen, and I'll be the first to admit policing is not a perfect profession. It never will be a perfect profession. But nothing is. But show me, yeah, show me a perfect profession. (laughs) And I'd love to study that. And I'm sure every police department in the country would love to study them. But I'll put law enforcement up against any other profession any day of the week. When you look at the amount of contacts we have with the public and how often these bad incidents do happen, you are more likely to be struck by light. And I've actually run the actual statistics. You are more likely to be struck by lightning in America than you are to be unarmed and shot by the police.
0: Wow. I love it. That's a great stat if it's accurate, but uh, it, it seems like it should be right based on the numbers. And I know my lightning numbers too. And it depends on where you are too. You have a better chance in Florida to be struck by lightning. (laughs) <laughs> these things I know so are you playing drums at the time when you're a police officer and how does what, what are your music interests at the time in the 80s well 90s? right
1: out of the actually in the academy I was approached by the New York City Police Emerald Society pipes and drums to join okay. uh, because somebody knew someone and knew I played and they were looking for membership and and it wasn't like they had to teach me how to play it was like okay here's your uniform you're marching with us that day um, <laughs> uh, so, so they approached me and I said, well, at least let me get out of the police academy. Cause you know, being a rookie police officer still in the police academy, you know, you don't want to put that kind of target on your back that you're getting special treatment or you're doing anything like that. But right after graduation, I joined and, and marched in the, the fifth Avenue, St. Patrick's day parade that year. And, uh, you know, I played with the pipes and drums all the way up until I was injured and really couldn't carry a drum and play anymore. So, Is that
0: right? That's yeah. awesome. So you're, yeah, it was great.
1: I mean, being I, being Irish American with a last name like O'Donnell you know, graduating <laughs> here, I am a police officer marching down and leading the police department in St. Patrick's Day Parade. It was it was a great feeling at, at first. After a couple of years when it's snowing and icing on us and you, oh, you have yeah. two inches of snow on your drum, you know, it was like, all right, maybe enough of this. But it, 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 was, it was great to represent both my heritage and, and the police department. In that in fact
0: in That is pretty cool. So are you a prolific drummer even now? I still have my drums.
1: Uh, you know, they're still here. Uh, my father was a drummer. My son actually played drums in in, in school. Uh, I'm actually, we're talking about maybe him taking the drum set here just so we can get more space in our basement now. Uh, but you know, every once in a while it's good to put the headset on and go down and still play.
0: You didn't play like backup uh, to backup for Def Leppard or anything like that? The one iron drummer? No, no. But to, to get back
1: to that first question, like the eighties icon, um, uh, it was funny. I, I my middle school principal was the uncle of Debbie Gibson, and uh, <laughs> after her first tour and her first hit album, they ended up fi- their drummer. I guess on tour got a little crazy, and they ended up firing him. And they needed a drummer, so he reached out to me, knowing back in middle school in junior high school, I, I was a good drummer then, and I think I was uh, only nineteen at the time. And he says, "Hey, you know, I want to bring you out to the studio and, and have you you sit in uh-huh. with Debbie Gibson for her next tour." So you know, I show up in a, in a unnamed studio out in Long Island, New York, and bring in my drums. And lo and behold, here's Deborah Gibson and, and her <laughs> entire band, you know, minus a drummer. And you know, they give you a week. Here's our here's our CD. Learn the songs, and you learn the songs. And you know, I ended up playing with them and sat down and we're in discussions with them. But it's, oh, in she, hindsight, was she a nice
0: person? Nice
1: person? Oh, she was great. I mean, she she was she. I think she's only a year younger than me, so. You know, at that time, if I was 19, she was 18. You know, she was still a kid. You know, she, I was just I believe 19, she started so out like at the
0: malls, right? She went from mall singer to pop star. Yeah, to Madison Square Garden. And
1: the, the, the tour was on Madison Square Garden. So I ended up sitting in with them and doing some studio work. But thankfully you know, chose not to go on tour because it probably would have taken my life in a totally different direction. Oh,
0: God. Yeah. Yeah. What was her song? Why can't I think of it? I think, I mean, Debbie Gibson, Debbie Gibson, help me out. We don't, you you don't know. uh, There was
1: There was Foolish Beat was our biggest, one of our biggest hits. (laughs) Doesn't ring a bell. Yeah. (laughs) It wasn't my kind of music. I was more. I was was listening to Todd
0: Rundgren at the time, but whatever.
1: (laughs) But then after, after I was, uh, after that, on one of my spring breaks in the Bahamas, actually, I, I, I'm down there and there's a huge club in Nassau, Bahamas, right off of Paradise Island called Club Waterloo. It's still there today. And it was just huge. It had four or five stages. It had a live band, one or two live bands, a DJ, an outdoor and indoor. It was just a real nice place. Right. And I ended up sitting in with the band. they were a band called High Voltage. And I ended up sitting in with them. And uh, Named after ACDC's album, I bet. You know, they were more of a Bahamas cover band, oh, okay. like top forty stuff. Right. but uh, you know, it wasn't rock and roll at all, It was all top 40s, dance music, you know uh, pop rock and roll and stuff like that. So you know I ended up sitting in with them playing a couple songs, and then uh, they asked me to come up on stage as like the next couple of days I was there. They see me in the, in the crowd and say, "Hey, come on up, and play a couple songs, basically just to give their drummer a break. You know, we played, and I went back the following year. And they changed their names to high voltage to the Bohemians, same type of music. They were still right. doing, you know, top 40 cover. And when I was down there, they saw me, you know, the next year recognized me and said, hey, come on up. And their drummer ended up breaking their hand Okay. Uh, when I was there. And the next thing I know, they're knocking on my hotel door and they're like, hey, can you come on over and play with us? You know, the drummer's name was Mo, you know, broke his hand and we need a drummer because he really can't play. So I ended up sitting in with them. For the week I was there and ended up staying, you know, I called home and said, I don't think I'm coming home. I'm going to stay in the Bahamas for a little bit. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, they wanted to set me up with a couple offshoots for their bands in the Bahamas. And I was, you can only stay up late at night, wake up early and drink the rest of the day. So many days when you're 20. Oh so, dude, you know, that's the, a lifestyle. Yeah. That's a lifestyle. Yeah. Well, it is when you look at it from the outside and say, Oh, that would be great. But when you're living it, it's like after about a month, it's like I can't do this anymore. I'm gonna die.
0: Oh, God. so uh, when you're at I, that I age, you're caught home. up in the whirlwind and you don't even
1: realize it. You're just going with it. But I end up coming coming home. You know, I become a police officer. I um, I meet my wife, and I, it was when the Mets were in the World Series, and uh, they're having the opening act before the World Series starts, and it was the Baja Men who let the dogs out. That song, who let the famous song, who let the dogs out. Well, the Baha Men were the Bohemians were high voltage that I was playing with down in the Bahamas.
0: They went from so. high voltage to Bohemians to Baha Men. Yep. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> and I mean, that song kind of is so bad, it's good. good. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, they really was on one hit wonder. They had an album or two after that, but just oh, to, uh, sit, I'm sitting on a couch with my wife, and I'm like, "Hey, I know them." Yeah.
0: <laughs> so for the rest of your life, who? Who, 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 who let the dogs out? You can say, I, I know those guys. I played with me. those guys. That could have been me. <laughs> the Baja, man. So when you were in your 20s and you were a police officer and doing some of these drumming gigs, were you still living at home with the parents? No, my parents left uh, before I became a police officer, oh. uh, just before. So you have your own apartment in the city you're 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 working the overnight shift you're getting shot at you're drumming I mean this is a lot for a 20-something guy
1: yeah it was a a fun life Uh, you know I I could I could look back and and at this stage in my life I look back and say you know I'm definitely I I wouldn't change much you know if I had the opportunity to because I I really lived a full life and did a lot of things you know that I'm happy with so So how
0: long were you uh, doing that in the city police officer
1: uh, I retired in the end of two thousand three. I was kind of banged up during nine eleven. Whoa! And, uh, so,
0: so, so, how many years is that? You start that's twenty year career there. No, no, I got
1: out uh, before that because of my injuries. Uh, I had to retire from the injuries I received. They ended up putting uh, um, steel rods in my neck. So, you can't go chasing bad guys and climbing fences and and possibly get into a vehicle accident chasing someone uh, when you, when you have that kind of surgery. So. I was forced to retire, but you know, I was at that point. I was in the homicide task force, and I had a lot of DNA cases from nine eleven. And uh, I wouldn't retire till all my notifications were done and all my identifications, you know, for the families were made because every detective, you know, had a hundred and something cases for their area wherever they were working to make the identification and notifications to the families.
0: Well, I'm confused. So maybe you had ten years in, but I'm still the whole police officer thing. And it's easy to offend you guys with the titles. There's police officer. There's officer. There's lieutenant. There's detective. There's sheriff. There's uh uh, uh uh help me out here. There's all these terms for you guys. And we just say cops. Like, what were you and how did you elevate yourself through, through the ranks, so to speak?
1: Yeah. I, um, I was promoted. Yeah, I was promoted twice. Uh, You start off in New York City as a police officer. So, police officer
0: is the correct term. That's the that's the lowly guy on the streets in the car arresting. You know, he's like the the grunt, so to speak.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and then from there, you know, based on on uh, some good work out of the 30,000 people that we had there, I was recognized by the police commissioner and I was promoted to police officer special assignment, special you're assignment,
0: special assignment, yeah, you're
1: still a police officer. Uh, it's a pay raise. And, and, you know, the recognition that you've done excellent work as a police officer. So, you know, out of the thirty five thousand people, I think only a thousand were elevated to, to police officer special assignment. Oh, um, and that's kind of the path where you're being recognized as a really good police officer. Uh, so it was an honor to have that, and I had that for a while. And then uh, from there, I went into the investigative. Uh, the, there's two avenues you can go as a police officer. You can go the investigative route, which brings you to detective, detective sergeant, you know, squad commander, which is a yeah. lieutenant or captain, or you could take tests and be get promoted from sergeant from police officer to sergeant to lieutenant to captain to deputy inspector, inspector, chief and then so on from there.
0: So you're rising up through, is that how it works then? Most police officers don't think this is it for the rest of my life. I'm going to start working up through the ranks, right? Some people just love the street work and and that's what they want to do. Uh, You know, uh,
1: taking the test and and becoming a, a boss and a supervisor of other people didn't really interest me. I wanted to get promoted through the investigative ranks. So, you know, that's where I Went into the investigative path. You have to work there for two years. And then after that, if you have the evaluations and the record to do it, you get promoted to detective. And from there, they have their own promotion. You can get detective first grade, detective second grade. Let me get back a little bit. When you're made a detective, it's a detective third grade. That's the <laughs> lowest rank of detective. And then it's detective second grade, detective first grade uh, that goes up those ranks. And at any time, you could take the promotion test to become sergeant. But You know, I I like the work of being an investigator, so that's the route I went.
0: Here's my impression. There's a dead body on the ground. They have the chalk outline. There's five police cars. The lights are going, and here comes the detective. He's got his regular guy clothes on, maybe a suit. He's got a little notepad. He flips it. He comes onto the scene. Everyone parts their ways, and he's like a big shot telling everyone what to do. Is that accurate?
1: Well, not the big shot telling. It's your crime scene. You're in charge of it. It's your investigation, but- you have the same rank as a police officer. So you, it's not like you're ordering people oh, around. Okay. You're asking people to do things. It is your crime scene. You're in charge. Mm-hmm. But it's not like you're barking orders at people. And, you know, a sergeant is still my supervisor and a lieutenant still my supervisor. But they kind of let you take control of it because it's your thing, not their thing. They're there to guard the crime scene and protect it. You're there to investigate it.
0: So you must understand, though, a lot of regular guys like me, all we know of what you do is what we see in the movies. There's no other angle on your life other than the movies because how else would we know so do you get mad when you yeah. see this on tv and you're in your movies you're like no it's not like that stop
1: no it's like anything i mean uh, it's like any profession you know what you see on tv i'm sure these medical shows on tv these uh you know doctor shows you know same the same thing the medical professions are looking at it going that's not how this works yeah yeah, yeah you know i mean when i was on the radio uh with nancy Last week, um, the producer said, hey, do you go home? Do you watch real live TV or police TV or do you watch these sh- police shows? And I said, know, well, do you go home and watch WKRP in Cincinnati? <laughs> it's, it's, it's not something that interests me. I, I lived it. I've done it. I'm not going to sit and watch it at home on my spare time.
0: <laughs> A great show, by the way. Who's your favorite character on that? Johnny Fever?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he he man, if you Uh, Les Nessman, I mean you can't you can't (laughs) you can't put aside Les (laughs) Nessman.
0: And we all need bosses like the GM of the place, right? He was just a uh, (laughs) That was
1: just a perfect cast. That was the office of yesterday. You know what? It was just a perfect cast of characters that they put together from all different backgrounds. You know, Lonnie Anderson's the secretary, you had the boss, you had the program director cowboy, (laughs) you know, you had the the soul and blues DJ. You had the rock and roll DJ. You had Les Nesman.
0: If you were a teenager uh, in the seventies and eighties, man, you had it made with shows like that. As God is my witness. I thought turkeys could fly. (laughs) Classic. Classic. Uh, It doesn't get any better. So uh, what happens to you to allow, or at least proceed into this uh, being taken from the business? You said you had some injuries or you had some, um, how did that happen? Was it just a part of the ongoing process of living, or were there an incident? No, just
1: just uh, getting banged around. On the, I was there the day of nine eleven. Um, you know, moving stuff, trying to sift through stuff. I, I was there. I worked the scene for a year after. You know, re- during the recovery process. Uh, But I was there from that day working for a year and just the getting banged around that day, you know, running for our lives, hiding under things, getting knocked around.
0: Could you tell me a little bit about that? So it was this clear blue sky day, right? You were, I'm trying to do the math here, 30 something, right? At the Uh, time? 30, yeah. 31. So you're 31 out of nowhere. The attacks occur and what you were, did you get like, were you on patrol at the time or you woke up the next day and they said, you I mean, how did, how did you get onto that environment?
1: Well, I, I was a homicide te- uh, detective at that point, uh, And we just made a homicide arrest three days before 9-11 and uh, okay. worked the case. And we actually made the arrest the day before on, on September 10th uh you know we found the body on like the seventh or eighth of September uh it took us a couple days to to find out who was our suspect and we ended up arresting them on the 10th processing them and and when all was said and done I think it was like two o'clock in the morning on September 11th that w- I finally brought them downtown and lodged them and and that's like you see on TV you bring them downtown yeah. and you put them in the big building is you know, that right? the jail cells yeah because the NYPD, you know, uses the same same uh, building that they've used in the '40s, you know, to house prisoners. Yeah, out of here, so, so it is.
0: That's yeah. interesting. The, 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 the gates slam, the bars lock. Ugh. Yeah,
1: and then it's right across from the courthouse, so they they go they'll go to court the next morning.
0: Were you still but, doing uh, overnights then, or no, no,
1: no, no? I was working when 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 you catch a homicide, when you catch a murder, basically you work until all leads are exhausted. It could be two days, it could be a week. You know, you're going to sleep in the bunk room for an hour or two, but you're going to chase down leads until you catch somebody. Uh, or it goes so cold that there's really nothing else to ch- chase. That's one of the great things. You know, th- That's where the show 48 Hours comes from. You know, you'll work that 48 hours straight oh, regardless. See. You don't go, there is no, my shift ends, now I'm going home. Oh, if you're the detective crew that catches that murder, you're working in different directions. You're following different leads. You're going in different directions until all the leads are exhausted or you get on a lead and catch somebody and bring them in and at that point you know you now you have miranda rights questioning video you know confessions writing statements down doing the paperwork and and all that so you know you could be working anywhere from a couple hours to a couple days to a couple weeks you know straight
0: so it's like you're on call 24 24
1: 247. yep So we just finished, and and I told my boss I was supposed to be in at seven o'clock the next morning. It was two o'clock in the morning. I said, "Hey, we've been working this case for the past couple of days. You know, I'll I'll get in tomorrow when I get in." And it was like, "No problem. It's understood. You guys were working hard for a couple of days. You know, if you come in late tomorrow, it's not a big deal." Right. So, uh, you know, I was home just getting ready to go in because I think I was planning to get into work at like nine anyway. And uh, I saw the first tower, the first plane hit the tower, and and on TV while I was getting ready, I was just
0: out of the shower. And where and, are uh, you at this moment? Where are you? How far away from them is your apartment? In, in, in Long Island. Wow, West yeah. Coast, West Side. So you're near the city. Yeah. So uh, western side of Long Island.
1: You know, at that point, the the newscasters were like, "Was it a, This thought it was a small private plane. It was an right. accident. We don't know what really hit it." And then live on TV, we saw the second plane fly in, and you could see right away that that was an airline carrier, commercial airplane. So, uh, you know, at that point, it's grab everything, grab my my red light in the car and get it up on the car and uh, start heading in. My brother worked at the World Trade Centers in building five. So, uh, you know, as this was going on, we couldn't get in touch with him. Of course, cell phones in Manhattan were down. Cell phones were having trouble everywhere. I called work and I said, hey, I'm going to go straight to the scene at the World Trade Center. My brother works down there. We can't get in touch with him. Uh, thankfully, he was in another building when this happened and he was he was up in Midtown at a meeting still wow. and wasn't in this facility. But we didn't know that because we didn't have any contact. Right. So, um, you know, just as I'm getting into Queens, you could see the smoke pillars in there from a distance. Uh, Tower one comes down. And uh, at that point, I was about 10 minutes from the Brooklyn Bridge, made it to the Brooklyn Bridge you know, abandoned the vehicle on the side of the road there and ended up on on the Manhattan side of the Brooklyn Bridge. We got in and because I worked midtown Manhattan as a rookie cop years earlier, I knew the World Trade Center, the subterrain of the World Trade Center, which is about 14 stories, you know, is is if you know it well, you can navigate in there. And since the first building came down already, it was, you know, how do we find ways to get inside the building from underneath? to get, see if there's survivors, see who's there, knowing that building two would come down, you know, eventually. And at that time, tower two came down and it was basically, you know, flee and shelter for your life, you know, at that point.
0: So I, I, I'm sure you might get emotional if you keep going on with this, but was, was the, what was the scene? Just total chaos, debris, clouds of dust, smoke everywhere. You don't you can't even tell what's going on. Is it like that much random chaos well, coming in from the outside in, while
1: it was happening, I mean, an engine from one of the jetliners was like five blocks away on the side of the street.
0: And is that there right? A
1: u- uniform cops there. I mean, the gruesome scenes. Uh, one of the things that I passed, you know, was the torso of one of the flight uh, attendants. No, and you could tell because the uniform was still there, strapped into her jump seat. And you know, you just make sure, hey, this cops just guard this, make sure no one goes near it. You know, this is this is evidence. It's part of the crime scene. But then you get in and then you notice the, the, the one of the biggest things I noticed was my eyes burning because there was just pulverized glass in the in the smoke. So the, your eyes immediately felt like they were scratched. Your corneas were all scratched and, and bad. You know, and then, of course, the air got worse and worse. And, and we had to kind of take shelter until the dust settled and such like that. But at that point, we weren't getting much information. We heard there were eight or nine aircraft still out there. And, uh, you know, later after the two towers came down, we finally got air cover from our military, but we didn't know if that was another strike coming in. So you're diving for cover thinking this is it. And, you know, I know I sent you one of the stories of they they did on me and my son. My son was six at the time. My wife was seven months pregnant. And I was able to make contact with them later that day and just tell them, hey, I don't think I'm coming home. You know, you're going to have to take care of your mother and the new baby. And, uh, you know, I had that conversation with your six year old son yeah uh it creates a bond that you uh, you know as a father yourself you know, you can only imagine you know that that special bond that we have because of that and, and then even my daughters you know my daughter knows that it was my middle daughter you know she she might have not been born with a father you know if it went bad you know bad the other way and my youngest daughter you know to this day who's she she's she's followed her brother's footstep and is attending the naval academy you know, said i wouldn't even be here if something happened to you on 9 eleven I wouldn't even exist so you know, her gift of service is because her, she, you know, she says her life is a gift. So.
0: So when this is all taking place on 9-11 in the mid morning, you're spending the entire day there. You have no hopes of going home that evening because the city was in chaos. How long were you there and what were you doing, say, five, 10, 15 hours later? Well, I mean, most of the stuff at that point was just evacuating as many people as
1: we can from lower Manhattan. We were throwing, you know, telling people, directing them over the bridges. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, at one point we were throwing people on every boat that came, you know, I, I know that they did a big special on the great boat lift on 9-11 where uh, these, these ferries and, and just personal boats would pull up to the docks and we were just throwing as many people on as we could to get them to evacuate lower Manhattan and, and eventually, you know, the entire island of Manhattan.
0: So you spent how long there that day where you didn't come home? You said you were just- I think it was like
1: 40 40 hours or so. That's a you know, Some some supervisor finally grabbed me, grabbed, you know, not just me, a bunch of us and said, hey, how long have you guys been here? Yeah. Since it started. And it was like, all right, you need to go home. And so, you know, we went back, drove home, changed on my back deck, took all my clothes off because they were caked in in gut. You know, I hosed off. Uh, We'd go in, took a shower again and laid in bed and stared at the ceiling for two hours and said, you know, I need to, I need to go back. I, you know, there's no use of me being here. I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to rest. I need to go back. My <laughs> yeah, friends, my any- friends are missing.
0: How do you do anything in that circumstance? And now decades later, um, d- d- I know the instances of respiratory illness and cancers are on the increase. Um, some of your friends, you yourself, have you been tested? Is everything okay? did you know of individuals caught in that uh, health circumstance yeah i mean guys i worked with side by side for the year
1: after sifting through the rubble and, and identifying pieces of bone pieces of hair you know personal property you know they're dying daily today i mean 911 is taking just as many people after that day that it did that day uh, as far as health concerns you know, my health concerns you know i have them i have the lung capacity of an 80 year old who smoked his entire life you know because of that, ne- because
0: of that that's,
1: yeah. the, that's i never smoked a day in my life you know you have the issues and and it's just this the scariness of it now when you have a pain in your side okay is this the big one you know is this something wrong now because they're finding cancers they're finding you know right. tumors respiratory illnesses you know anytime i have a, a smark on my skin you know that needs to be tested it needs to be scraped off and it's just the You know, you get a regular flu. Okay, well, is this more than the flu? It's just that that cloud over you that that affects not just me, affects anyone who was there and exposed to it, you know, that that you live with day in and day out.
0: Well, Rob, I know you don't want to hear this, but you are a hero because there could have been cowards that said, I got to get out of here and just left as fast as they could. But instead of leaving, you go in. Right. I mean, that's a decision you make on the spot.
1: Yeah, I've, I have a very good friend now. She was actually a personal trainer. She, she had her master's degree in physiology. She was a personal trainer at a gym in, in for Morgan Stanley, I believe, and was there that day. And she was in her 30s. Like I said, she had her master's degree. Okay. And as she was running out uh, for the past decade now, we've been very close. You know, she saw the police and the firemen running in. She ended up quitting her job and becoming a police officer at the age of thirty, and she's now the highest-ranking female in the city of Secaucus, New Jersey, because you know nine eleven was so dramatic on her seeing the people rush past her into the building. Right. She changed her entire life, her entire career, and said, "This is what I want to do." And, and that kind of highlights what you were just saying. Yeah, you know, this this and and highlights the the relationship that we have that's so close now that you know, that's how. We see each, I see her as a hero for quitting her job and, and taking up this line of work, you know, and she looks at me and says, well, you were the ones running into the building that maybe changed my, my,
0: my life. So, so many people changed uh, and inspired from the uh, stories like that. So is it safe to say for you, if 9-11 didn't happen, we wouldn't be having this conversation because when you leave in 2004, was it, was it like the byproduct of that situation in a way? Like, I got to get out of here. I need a new life. I need a change.
1: Well, no. one of the things of working as a police officer in New York City is you have a residency requirement. You have to live in the city in, the, in or the surrounding boroughs. So I didn't have, once I retired, I did not have that anymore. Uh, I, I wanted to get out of the area. I wanted to. Even before 9-11? Go, no, when I retired. Uh, so, you know, 9-11 happened. I worked. I didn't have my surgery till about Thanksgiving 2003. <laughs> Um, I had my daughters, my daughters are 11 months apart. I had them back to back in 2002 and how I realized that I started to have, were having issues is I had one, one year old and I had a, one brand new newborn in a car seat and I wasn't able to carry them. I was losing all function in my left side. So, uh, you know, went to the doctor, started getting things done. They said, yeah, you have fractures and compression in, in your C-spine. Um, you're going to be paralyzed if we don't go in and fix it, you know, so, in the end of, I lived with the pain during 9/11. You knew you were hurt. You knew during the recovery that things weren't right, but there was no such thing as "Hey, I'm hurt. I need to go home." You went in and did your job because you know that that's what we do. And uh, um, you know, I had the surgery finally because I realized that you know I, I can't lose function in my left side. Had the surgery in the end of 2003 uh, and was retired right after that because, like I said, you can't have that kind of surgery and still you know take the risk of chasing people over fences you're know, getting into a vehicle crash so i i retired on december 31st of 2003 found my house here in northeast pennsylvania on january 3rd of 2004 so i think it was three three days later i found this house it was the second house we looked at it's uh, i mean you know the area well it's on top of uh, uh bell mountain i can see the steam coming from the berwick smokestacks from my back deck yeah uh and we looked at the view. We looked at the house and said, yeah, this is this is where I want to spend the rest of my life and raise my children.
0: But back up. So if, if I took you in your brain back to 1998, 1999, 2000, and someone said, oh, in five, six years, you're going to be living in rural Northeastern PA, would you have believed that or, or were the makings of that already happening? Did you know I can't spend the rest of my life here? Or
1: is it? No, I mean, of- I would have done. Yeah, I would have done seven more years with the police department. Oh, I think okay. I retired with 13 years on. So I, w- I would have been there for at least another seven years. You know, who knows where my career would have been at that point? Uh, yeah. You know, stay another another five years or if it's something that's really looking at you know, who move. You know, I could have moved to Florida like all the other snowbirds do retire and move to Florida, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> Savannah, you- Georgia. Actually, the two places that I we wanted to move was either northeast Pennsylvania here or Savannah, Georgia area. Uh, my wife wanted to stay closer to New York because, you know, you talk about me being from Queens with an accent. My wife's from Brooklyn oh, so right. with an accent even worse than mine. So,
0: But that day in 2002 or three or early four, I don't know, when you I'm trying to create a dramatic situation here. You open up a map or you're on Google. What makes you search? Northeastern PA, like what? What made you target oh, okay. even Lackawanna County? You know what? What is it? Did you have a yeah. relative, friend, something? Yeah. Um. Uh, my parents lived in Moscow, Pennsylvania. Oh, down there, ooh. and uh,
1: my I ended up losing my father at the age of fifty-nine to colon cancer, uh, oh. and he died. He died an hour and fifteen minutes into September twelfth of the one-year anniversary of nine eleven. So I I spent the one-year anniversary of nine eleven in a hospice in Scranton with my dad. And, uh, I finally, you know, I, I was, was the one year anniversary. I, I cannot give kudos to the hospice staff in Scranton enough because I was a mess. It was the one year anniversary. They were playing everything on TV. I'm there with my father who, who's, who's dying in front of me. And, uh, you know, they were great. They, I think they took care of me more than they did a, a lot of the other patients that were there. Unfortunately. But uh, they were great, and I, I think I just dozed off, and it was like an hour and 15 minutes into nine twelve. he held in and didn't die on the one-year anniversary, and they woke me up and said, you know, he's gone. Uh, so my mom was here, you know, at a young age. I said my my dad passed away at 59. This was 2002. I had the three children at that point. My mom was here by herself, so I said, you know, let's, let's look to get somewhere closer to her so she can, you know, have the grandkids around to kind of preoccupy her, you know, after she's newly been alone, too, so. It was it was kind of a no brainer there, but I still moved
0: out of that bubble where the New Yorkers go. Dude, you've been through a lot though. The stories continue. So since two thousand four, you settle in. Um, I, I'm I'm assuming you're not at the point in life in two thousand four five where you're like, okay, I'm set for life now. I'm forty some years old, thirty some years old at the time. Like, you know, what, what were you thinking? I need a new career. I need a new job. What do you do next?
1: Well, it's kind of just reevaluate everything at that point. You know, I moved here. We, I think, we finally moved in the the beginning, the middle of April, so it was springtime, and uh, you know, meeting the neighbors. I live in a rural, r- real rural area. It's a dirt road with not many neighbors. All right. Uh, but like you said, uh, I'm I'm thirty something. Uh, you know you'd sit on the front porch with your coffee in the morning and wave to the neighbors as they go to work in the morning and they're coming back in the afternoon and you're, you're sitting still- out there with an iced tea iced tea drinking the same coffee and and uh, you know that their waves slowly turned into giving me the finger because here's these 50 and 60 year old contractors and farmers you know, say, who the hell is this guy think he is? You know, and then my who wife, honey, New York this. Drink Yeah, my, my wife would come out and say, you know, what are you going to do today? I said, oh, I'm going to watch that squirrel over there. I think he's going to go for that tree, but I'll let you know.
0: Yeah, but you say well, that just honestly, your brain had to be in chaos. You had to be thinking, I can't just do nothing the rest of my life. Some yeah, no, that's meaning. just not who I am. Even if you're a parent and you're busy with that, some people find meaning in their work. One of my buddies always says, the only thing worse then working is not working. And there's truth in that. No one likes it, but but yet it's our purpose in life in many ways. Yeah. So what'd there you is. do? And, and
1: I ended up uh, becoming the director of public safety for a community uh, out here in Northeast Pennsylvania. There you go. Yep. Yeah, back into doing what I was doing and, and did it for 17 years. But, you know, with anything, things change, you know, the community leadership changed, and it just becomes, became something after 17 years. It became something that that you know just wasn't fun for me anymore so uh yeah but know, now I,
0: you're in your 50s you could retire yeah but and you, you could know, flip just,
1: everyone just, the finger yeah i can <laughs> uh, but you know it's just it's just not i all the kids are out of the house like i said my my last two are in college now um you know i'm enjoying that during that stage in the life where you know the wife and i have the house to ourselves most of the time it's it's looking at the next thing. My son was just married last year. So, you know, hopefully grandkids down the road and, you know, just looking at the next next step. You know, I was down and in, in, I lived in Washington, D.C. And, and this is something you find every guy talks about. Oh, I wish I was single again. You know, I, I you know, I, I how great would it be to be on my own? Well, I ended up taking a contract down in Washington, D.C. last year. And my wife works for a school district up here. You know, she's a personal trainer for one of the gyms up here. It wasn't like we were going to move down there. Right. But with my son getting married, two daughters in college, you know, you still have to work at this point. So, uh, and it was something I really couldn't say no to. So I went down and I, I got an apartment in the Annapolis area, and lived down and worked in D.C. under this contract for the last year, and it was on my own basically. My wife came down once or twice on the weekends. I came up for a weekend here and there. So and, uh, she's
0: here. Your kids are in college or doing things, and you go get a job. It's five hours away. Am I following yeah. you right here? get out yeah. of
1: here and it was just like a stepping stone hey if it's something that that we really like you know we'll, we can get a place down there she can easily find a job down there uh, <laughs> so it wasn't really it was kind them. of put uh, it just just wasn't all it was meant up to be you get home from work and it, then you you're fixing your own dinner you're doing all your own stuff you're doing <laughs> your own chores you do, I didn't really have much time out or to do anything other than work, eat, and sleep. So, you know, it it got old very quick, and it's just not where I wanted to be in that stage in life. But it it served its purpose. You know, it it paid for the rest of my daughter's college. You know, it it helped us out. My son ended up getting married in Annapolis, so it was great that we had a place there where he got married, uh, because everybody came from out of town. You know, her her family was from the Mississippi area. Um, You know, he went to school in Annapolis, so you know, all his friends came in, and, and then our family came down.
0: Let this be a lesson to anyone out there listening who wants a break from their marriage because I am going through the same thing. Now, I'm married 30 years, you're married 28 years. So my mother-in-law has a place in Florida. My wife works remotely. So last winter, she says to me, my wife, who works remotely, she goes, you know what? I'm going to go down and live with my mother for a week or two throughout this winter. Uh, Now, my kids are all in college or away. And she said, you know what? I'm going to go live with my mother at her condo for a few weeks during January and February. And deep down inside, I'm thinking, ooh, this is going to be great. Yeah, yeah, I'm a bachelor again. I'm home all by myself. And like you said, everyone, every guy feels that way, right? So then she leaves. The first few days, this is pretty cool. First week, ah, this is pretty cool. And then I get pizza Friday. I bring it home. Hey! Everyone, I brought pizza home, but there's only me. Nothing's fun anymore when you're by yourself. And then by the second week and third week, I'm like, I can't do this. So she would come back. But yeah, even a marriage that's, and I don't mean this in a negative way, old and tired. I love my wife. You love your wife. We have a great relationship. And you think, oh, you're just sick of each other. Have them go away for a week or two. You'll appreciate them, right? It doesn't, it gets old quick. It gets old really quick
1: it's a nice punchline. It's a nice joke. It's nice, It's not nice to brag about it with the guys, but when it really happens, like you said, yeah. after a week or two, it's like, yeah, this isn't where I want to be in life right this now. This
0: isn't where I want to be in life. So yeah, we yeah. rearranged it this, this year. So my wife is only going to be gone for a week or so, a, a couple times because I told her I can't handle this. I can't be home alone. It's pathetic in a way. You know, you sit in bed with your dog and watch TV. That's not good. He eats the crust of the pizza. Come on. There's more to life. Yeah, and
1: you find yourself talking to the dog more than, talking the, to the more, dog. than more than you yeah. should be.
0: <laughs> I was eating over the sink, Rob, because I didn't want to use any dishes. Eating over the sink. That's how pathetic my life became. Yeah, I know I get it completely. <laughs> it's like, why put a plate out? It's just me. <laughs> All right. So uh, you're doing all right in life now. You're doing some coaching. You got um, you're you're settled in. You're back here and uh, your health seems to be fine. You're you're everything's good in life. Yeah, no more coaching now. You
1: know, I coached, uh, you know, the 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 youth football up here. And then, you know, all my kids were through sports uh, just, you know, basically on the sidelines through their high school sports. But, you know, I coached their uh, youth football before he got into the high school uh, football, but you know, it was, it was that part in life, you know, where kids are doing youth sports and you get involved and you do the, the dad thing and the parent thing. You know, my daughters did, you know, tried their, their thing in soccer, youth soccer, youth softball and all that.
0: That's excellent. Well, I'd like to end on two things, and this is going to be fun things. Number one, your wife is the personal trainer to others, including Mindy Ramsey, my colleague at WNEP. Give me some dirt on her. Come on, give me some dirt courtesy of your wife. Give me some dirt on Mindy.
1: You know, I, I my wife doesn't talk shop with me. She she, <laughs> she she tries to get she tries to get me to go to the gym as much as she can and that's just not my thing to go around in a circuit and sweat with other people. So
0: me neither. Uh, so you're not going to give me any dirt on Mindy Ramsey. I, I don't have any, you
1: know, <laughs> she, she's a regular. I know, I know the the WNEP was just at the gym, you know, one of the mornings, uh, last, last yeah, week, no, late no, last no, week, no, they were no, at the gym no, right. and Mindy was anchoring in, and she was getting beat up for not being at the gym. <laughs> and I felt bad because the news, <laughs> the news girl that was there was like, Hey, Mindy, they're saying they haven't seen you a while. And, and <laughs> as, as per my wife, I know she's there all the time. So you know, she was really getting beat up for not being at the gym when she's actually at the gym. And I, I felt bad for Mindy because I, I know how not going to the gym feels.
0: My it wife is me right? a hard
1: time all the time.
0: Uh, well, I meant to ask you, too, before I have my second request. When you came here in 2004, did you immediately find WNEP or did it take a while to browse around a couple of stations? What made you settle on us?
1: No, it was... The main, the main station for this area, you know, it was they had the most uh, in depth. It's, it's good to see the people that started here. You know, the the weather, the weather people, and some of the anchors where they've moved on now. Actually, I was down in DC, and uh, uh, Ping- who's uh, down there? The is down there now. Uh Ping- Charlotte or- Bride. Oh, Charlotte, Charlotte McBride,
0: Yeah, Pingalore's is in Florida. Mm-hmm. Okay,
1: yeah. And she, she's down in the DC area, and then there was the the weather girl uh, with the dark hair. Uh, I forget. He's in Philly. One of them went to the one. One of them went to the Weather Channel. One went to Philly. Yep. Uh, but it was nice to see that changeover and, and, and to see you know you, you you in the morning and everything that goes on in the morning in the backyard.
0: You have a good time. Actually, well, I'll
1: give you. I'll give I better you be a, your a favorite weatherman. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll give you some and WNEP tri- trivia that I'm give related to, to. I won the Outdoor Life UTV back in 2008. <laughs>
0: I bet you that sucker's outdated now, huh? It's still in my garage. Going, okay. <laughs> yeah. Don Jacobs
1: presented it to you, or who who, who delivered that to you? Uh, who was the other guy with Don? Don wasn't there that day. It was uh, Don Jacob. his partner.
0: Yeah, okay. I can't remember who that would have been back then. But uh, oh yeah, so and you... they
1: actually featured my son because he actually shot his first buck the day before we went to pick up the W the the, the UTV on the air.
0: Excellent. I love it. I love it. All right. So here's my last request, Rob, Now we're going to end this thing. Are you ready? Let's pretend we're back in the day. It's in the 90s, early 2000s, whatever. I did something illegal. This is it. Give me my Miranda rights. Let's see it right from memory. There we go. Oh, come on. <laughs> you You can't do it? Come on. I want no. them all. You can't. Really? From all no. the TV shows, I can almost do it. Yeah, actually, you know what it is? You never had
1: to depend on it because you always had to read it off the card and have them sign <laughs> okay. the card because people would just leave. You'd leave out one word. You'd leave out an end or a, you'd leave out something simple or and and they'd say it, the Miranda's no good because you didn't read it properly. So we got so used to reading it off the piece of paper and had them sign it that they were given their Miranda Um. Oh, that's you, know, you a, really never have. It's it's like having. You know, do you know your kids' cell phone numbers? No, you press the button on your cell no, phone. No, yeah,
0: you're it's right. So that's a good point because I would often watch movies or hear other police officers, and they, especially on PD live shows like that, and they take out the card, and I'm like, they don't have that memorized. But you're right; they can't screw up even a one syllable, or yep. the uh, lawyers are going to be on them. See the things we learn here. Yeah. So it's it's not all
1: it's not all movies and TV. There's there's a reason behind it, but because of that, you know, in, in the, the laziness of the human brain, you never have to memorize it because you're always reading it. It's just like having your you know, I couldn't even tell you my wife's cell phone number. You know, I press the button that says wife.
0: Well, yeah, the brain prioritizes what it needs to know, and then it puts everything else in the uh, back seats for a while. It makes total sense when you think about yeah. it. All right. Well, so you I'm never... sorry I couldn't end on a high note. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, no, that, this is a high note. Do you think I have a police record or no, a guy like me? Uh, you know,
1: I, they could probably get you for traffic violations on that bike. I'm sure.
0: <laughs> the funny you know, part it, is it, it, that you—you you, here's a good ending for this. Um, I was going through downtown German. This was like three years ago, and I'm a cyclist on a bike, going through these small towns where there are no cars and stop sign after stop sign. So what I normally do is slow up, look, and keep going. I don't stop at stop signs when I'm on my bike training, doing a 30, 40 mile bike ride. Wouldn't you know, three, four years ago, I got pulled over by the police for going through a stop sign on my bike. I'm like, (laughs) I'm like, sir, you gotta be kidding me. He's like, your bicycle must follow the same motor vehicle laws as everyone else. You must stop at stop signs. And uh, and that was a pretty funny moment. Would you arrest a guy like me for going through a stop sign? Or at least pull no. me off? I mean, come no, on. But... Let the
1: little things go, right? Yeah. I mean, well, you're talking German, Pennsylvania. How much do they really have?
0: <laughs> that,
1: a... Yeah, it's, it's actually, they do it more than the they should day. be for a small. Yes. They, they, should be, <laughs> they, they actually do it more than they should be in a small town like that. But uh, unfortunately. But, but you, yeah, that's something like that. You know, that's, there's there's other things to find out there than that. But it's it's amazing that I, I came up with that as your
0: as your crime, right? That's funny because you are correct. The only thing uh, you can lose respect from me if you want. The only thing I've done illegal in my entire life is I have numerous speeding tickets, but I've changed my ways. And being a man from my generation, in 1981, I think I was in ninth or tenth grade, and one of my buddies was down at Hess department store in Dixon city. It's a mall. And that was a store. And you remember the band Asia? Yes. Asia. So I was down there with a bunch of buddies we're 15, 16 years old. You're, you're, you know, you're at that age. He tries to shoplift the Asia album and put it in a bag that he had and he, he couldn't get it in the bag. So, so I, like the, the big vinyl album, that's yeah, like the big album. He was 16. trying to stop the bag and shoplift the album because he didn't have 10 bucks on him. And then I grabbed the bag and I readjusted and I go, just put it in there and boom. And I shoved it in there and we both walked out and guess what happened? We got caught. So I was arrested when I was 15, 16 years old for helping him shoplift an Asia album from the store Hess's.
1: Did they just bring you home and let your parents handle it? Yeah, or was it was a call the parents take, thing. They, that's all it was. Yeah, so. yeah. that was the worst. You know what? That was the best and worst. You know, worst when it was you back then having it happen to you, but it it stays with you. I, you know, I I think my theft was a, a rubber handball from a local drugstore. <laughs> uh brought me brought me home and
0: uh, never do that again. No, never. But if you were to go back to your computers uh, in system in, in in your police department, would you be able to find my record of stealing a, a Asia album in nineteen eighty one or two? Or no, that's probably gone by now.
1: No, it was a juvenile record, so it would have been sealed. And uh, it uh, since they never really did it officially and just took you home to your parents, it wouldn't be on record.
0: Oh, perfect! Because I want that thing forgotten, even though I'm bringing it up in a podcast.
1: We can expunge it right after this. <laughs> I do want I that. do I have the do I have the authority to, to like expunge, you. expunge expunge your way. fifteen your fifteen year old uh, mis- misdeed?
0: Yeah, all right. I learned from that. And Asia was a great band, by the way. Well, Rob O'Donnell, it was a great talking to you. Is there anything we left out that you want to shove in before we say goodbye? I think a lot of people uh, can be inspired and uh, uh, touched and learned a lot about your profession and your career through your life arc and story. It's awesome.
1: Law enforcement today is, and first responders in general, your emergency medical, your fire, and your first responders are really going through a rough time lately, you know, with all the the targeting of them as a profession. Just when you see them, thank them. And when you see see them, when you walk by them, you know, tell them you appreciate them because they are the ones that are coming coming to run to your aid when you need help. And, and, you know, we see one of the big thing with this uh, Damaris Hamlin who went down from the Buffalo Bills and they showed the ambulance out on the field and and they said the, the lowest Paid person, the EMTs that were there uh, on the field performed the most, the most, uh, best job on the field.
0: What a great point. You think of all the money that the players make and the coaches and everyone on that field. And then, yeah, and what changed the life there was not one of the million dollar players, but you're right. Some EMT making, uh, $38,000 a year, perhaps, right? Yeah, sure.
1: So, you know, just if you're out there out and about and you see these. Most of them volunteer EMS workers on the ambulances, your volunteer fire crews or your your local police, you know, just say thank you. And, and and, you know, give them the pat on the back that they deserve because they will run into fire and they will run into gunfire to save you.
0: And I'm going to say it to you, thank you. Just in the, the right place at the wrong time, most of the time. That, that's my my <laughs> motto. Yeah, but you did the right thing. I appreciate it. And thanks for the uh, interview, people. uh People, um, you know, uh, sometimes overlook your profession, but hopefully this helped a little bit. No, I appreciate it, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Thanks, Rob. Curiosity. What are you so curious about? Everything. Mr. Curiosity.